Thanks, Scott. It's tough to uh, follow an introduction with all those accolades that make me sound like so much more than I really am, but I appreciate it. Um, Last week, I was kind of doing a little bit of homework and uh, studying where you all had been, and as God's providence often works out, you were in Luke 9, verse 23 last week, which says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I didn't even know that that's what was going to be preached, uh, but we're going to dovetail right into that this week. If you take your Bibles and turn with me, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, and uh, a couple things. First of all, if you have your Bible on your phone, if you can set the setting so that the words of Christ are in red, that'll help some of our time together this morning because we're going to be looking at a passage where Jesus is having a conversation with a rich young ruler, then later he has a conversation with his disciples, and we're going to be moving really quick this morning. We've got several verses to cover. Uh, Last week, I think there was one verse that was covered and a powerful message that was given out of one verse. I'm going to try to cover a few paragraphs, and we've got a lot of ground to make up. So uh, stick with me, and, uh, and we'll make some good tracks here this morning. The other thing that you can do, if you would like, is track along in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 19 or Luke chapter 18. The story of the rich young ruler is unique in the Gospels in that it is one of the only personal interactions we see Jesus have, personal conversations we see Jesus have, that is covered from multiple perspectives in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, I'm going to be in Mark this morning, but you can get some of that flavor from a different eyewitness perspective if you track along in either Matthew 19 or Luke 18 as well. Before I get into that, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and then I've got a quick passage or quote that I want to read for you uh, from Randy Alcorn. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning as a body. Thank you for the privilege that it is to enter into your presence. Father, we rest in relationship with you and and we can lay aside all of the life's burdens and distractions that so often pull us off track. Father, I pray that you would help us to focus this morning on relationship with you because of the life that we have in Jesus. Let everything else fall away, Father, and give us a hope of eternity and a perspective that is focused on you and you alone. As we examine your word, Father, help us to approach it with reverence and anticipation of what the Holy Spirit will do in our hearts and lives this morning. Father, I pray that you would be moving in us and through us because you can't do a great work through us until you have done a great work in us. And so we invite you in this morning to work in our hearts to break down any strongholds, to remove the hidden places, bring them into the light so that we are completely and humbly in service to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So to start us this morning, Randy Alcorn leads a ministry called Eternal Perspective Ministries, and he's written a number of books. This one is called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And I wanted to open with this quote because I think it is powerful as we launch into the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. Randy Alcorn, in the introduction of his book, says this, Our use of money and possessions is a decisive statement of our eternal values. What we do with our money loudly affirms which kingdom we belong to. Whenever we give 
of our resources to further God's kingdom, we cast a ballot for Christ and against Satan, for heaven and against hell. However, whenever we use our resources selfishly or even indifferently, we further Satan's goals. The key to a right use of money and possessions is a right perspective, an eternal perspective. What I do today has tremendous bearing on eternity. Indeed, it is the stuff of which eternity is made. The everyday choices I make regarding money and possessions are of eternal consequence. I want to just camp on that for a second because if if you don't remember anything else I say today, I want you to walk away with this mindset. The everyday choices I make regarding money and possessions are of eternal consequence. And in fact, we could broaden that out and remove the middle part of that quote and just say this. The everyday choices I make are of eternal consequence. What what I want us to do today is walk away with a shift in perspective that recognizes An eternal perspective increases the value and the importance of every moment of our life. If we can walk away with that mentality, it will change the way you live every moment of your life. Whether that's the email that you have to send at 2.30 in the afternoon and it's just a task you've got to get knocked out, how is that email and the way you're communicating and the relationship with the person on the other end of that email having eternal significance? We're potty training my three-year-old. Okay, bang my head against a wall, but there are frustrating moments in parenting, right? And so constantly I have to remind myself, this is a human life that I am right now impacting for all of eternity. And if I approach this potty training conversation for the 17th time today in that spirit, Man, that is a much different conversation if I recognize the importance and the eternal significance of that conversation than if it is simply a momentary frustration of why he can't seem to get this right, right? Allow that to permeate your life. Allow this quote to linger in your mind in the moments of every day. It will change the way you approach everything you do on a daily basis. So, As we get into Mark chapter 10, what I'd like to do this morning is read through the entire passage together. Now I'm going to make some broad observations with you, and then we're going to dig in and take a closer look at why Jesus says what he says to the rich young ruler, why the rich young ruler responds the way he does, and then why the disciples are are so amazed by Jesus' follow-up explanation of that interaction, all right? So as I said, we got to really make some tracks. Let's jump in. And uh, Tech Booth, I apologize. We'll see if you can keep up with me as we uh, get through the notes here this morning. All right. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31 says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had 
great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter spoke up and said, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes and brothers and mothers and children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Before we dig into the details of this conversation, a few broad observations. First of all, as I mentioned, you can be following along in Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30, and Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. Sorry, we're in Mark 10. And then also Luke 18, verses 18 through 29. This is a a brief conversation, but it is one of the only conversations that we see Jesus have with another individual that is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. And there's a couple important things that we can learn from that. First of all, if we were only looking at Mark, we would know that this man was rich, but the other two descriptors that we often use, we'd have no idea. It's Matthew that tells us he was a young man, and it's Luke that tells us he was a ruler, but as we will see, all three are important and significant in his hesitation to follow through on Jesus' request. So rich, young, ruler, it's important to recognize all three. Next, we often focus on the fact that this passage is about riches and wealth. No argument it is. However, first and foremost, this passage is about salvation. Let's take a look back real quick. Verse 17, we see eternal life. Verse 21, we see treasure in heaven. Verse 23, enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, be saved. Verse 30, eternal life. Yes, Jesus is having a conversation with this rich young ruler about some of the things that are standing in his way, but first and foremost, this entire conversation, both with the rich young ruler and with his disciples, is about eternal life. This is about salvation. This is pure and simple, the gospel. We need to recognize that this morning because that's where our attention is going to be drawn. And then finally, there were two things that kept the rich young ruler from abundant life today, which we see Jesus talk to his disciples about in that last paragraph, but also from eternal life, treasure in heaven, entering the kingdom, and salvation in eternity. So this is about today and eternity, but there were two things in the rich young ruler's heart that kept him from either. And we'll take a closer look at that. So let's get back into verse 17 and start to work our way through this passage. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 again says this, and Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, Before I even get into what this man said and Jesus' response, I think it's important to recognize the approach that this man had. In this culture, first of all, uh, he he throws off decorum and he humbles himself. What I mean by he throws off decorum is it was not seen, it was not done by the wealthy to run anywhere. It didn't happen. 
So when you see this man running up to Jesus, we know at least the disciples were around him. Most of the time, Jesus had a great crowd around him. So we see that he has direct access to Jesus, runs right up to him, and then falls on his knees and humbles himself. Everything physically that this man does seems appropriate. Seems like he's recognizing who Jesus is and is coming to Jesus with the intent of how do I have eternal life? So for us, in, in any ministry setting, if you had a rich, young, influential person who is running up to a ministry leader and saying, how do I get engaged, right? I mean, immediately the answer is going to be like, believe and follow and let's get you plugged in, brother. Like, we can do this. Look, we can use this guy. This is exciting. Instead, and maybe because that's often our mentality, Jesus' response is interesting. So this man runs up to Jesus, falls on his knees, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't even address the question. Why do you call me good? There's nobody good except God alone. Anytime Jesus asks a question, I think it's important and a good practice for us to slow down and ask ourselves, why would Jesus ask that question? Because there is so much wealth and truth underneath Jesus' questions all the time. Anytime you dig into that, why would Jesus ask this question? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's take a look. No one is good except God alone. Jesus is understanding this man's heart. He's ignoring all the posturing. He's ignoring the physical display and going straight to the heart and recognizing you're calling me good for one reason and one reason only. You believe, number one, that I am not God, and number two, you believe that you are a good person. We have to completely change your perspective. Isn't Jesus, he's constantly shifting perspectives, constantly working on people to change their mindset and their life outlook. So in this instance, this is Jesus saying, nope, there is no one good but God. You believe there's a relative scale of good. And so even in Matthew where he says, good teacher, what good thing must I do? Jesus is saying there is no good thing that you can do to inherit eternal life. We have to crush that right now because God's expectation of good is perfection. And you believe there is a sliding scale that somehow you can earn or do something to be considered good by God. It will never happen. That gap cannot be breached, covered. You cannot span that gap between you and God. There is no one good but God alone. His demand is perfection and you don't meet it. So because you believe I'm a good teacher and you believe yourself to be good, you're asking me what good thing you can do to inherit eternal life. There is nothing. We have to eliminate that out of your mindset. We have to change your perspective. And Jesus starts here and camps here because without this change in perspective, there is no hope for this man. We have to recognize that in him so that we can recognize that in ourselves. This is critical. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? And this is not Jesus admitting that he is not God, although some skeptics and critics would like us to believe that. Instead, this is Jesus saying, there is only one who is good, and that is God, and you don't believe that I am him. In fact, I think it's important to, to really quickly camp on the fact that a lot of worldviews and beliefs would say, Jesus is not God. He was a good teacher. He was a good prophet. He was a good man. He was not God. Listen, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. There is nothing outside of that that falls within the category of Jesus. If you try to put Jesus into any of those other categories, Christianity unravels. We have to recognize that he was God and God alone. Jesus is God first and foremost, and his expectation is good, and there's nothing that this man could do to earn that goodness. 
So then Jesus goes on further and says in the Ten Commandments, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. What's interesting about this is Jesus starts with the last half of the Ten Commandments. You recognize that? The first half are the vertical, okay? The first five commandments, vertical, our relationship with God. The last half, which is where Jesus camps, are horizontal, our relationship with our fellow man. And it's interesting. Why would Jesus start here? Why doesn't he just start at the beginning? I think, again, this was Jesus exposing this man's heart, recognizing that he believed himself to be good, and further demolishing that, both for this man and for the disciples and the rest of the crowd that was standing around. So Jesus says, here are the last five commandments. You know the commandments. Have you kept them? Here's this man's response. With anticipation and excitement, he says, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Again, if this man had recognized, if, if, if this man had heard the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached a few chapters before, where Jesus says, if you've hated in your heart, you've committed murder already. If you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery already. He never would have believed that he had kept all these commandments since he was a boy. He again is trusting in his own goodness. That was the first fatal flaw of the rich young ruler. He believed he was capable. He's not and we'll see this from Jesus a little bit later in the text. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is the reason I chose to preach this out of Mark. We could have been in Matthew or Luke. I chose to preach this out of Mark because of this line. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And that line is critical because the next thing Jesus says is extremely difficult. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Man, at first glance, this sounds like a cold, legalistic, check the box, do this thing, and then you've earned your way in, especially sometimes if we look at it in the context of following up on the Ten Commandments. You didn't meet these, go and do this, and then you can earn your way in. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is recognizing and drawing this man's attention to the fact that there are issues in his life standing between him and Jesus. There are issues in his heart standing between him and relationship, and he has to surrender those things in his heart before he can ever hope to inherit eternal life. So Jesus, because he loved him and because he wanted eternal life for and with this man, just like he wants eternal life for and with every one of us, he tells him the truth. In love, he tells him the truth and says, you have to surrender this, you have to release this, you have to come to me and me alone. There's nothing you can do, and there's nothing here that is of more value than me and me alone. Unfortunately, the man had a choice to make and we see in Scripture that at this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. This is where I want to bring back really quickly the rich, young ruler piece because Jesus did not just ask him to give up his possessions. You recognize that? Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. That last piece is equally important in this statement because Jesus said, give up your possessions, but give up your position Give up your power, give up all the people that you've known, give up your pride, humble yourself, submit yourself to me, come and follow me, leave all of that behind, then you'll have eternity. Man, there, sometimes it's easy to armchair quarterback this stuff. What is it in our own lives that we are holding on to so tightly that is just difficult to release and give up to Jesus? I know I've got stuff in my heart. 
daily, constantly, I have to be evaluating what is it in my life that I treasure more than Jesus. Is it my possessions? And in our society and culture, it could easily be possessions. But it could just as easily be your position, your power, your pride, the people you love. It could be a number of things. Jesus is telling this man to relinquish all of that if he wants eternity. At this, the man's face fell. And I'm going to step off to the side here for just a second. And I think rich, young ruler, the maybe the most difficult part for this man was the fact that he was young, not because of immaturity, but because he believed he had time. Think about this. If the rich, young ruler had been terminal and knew he had weeks to live, would his response to the eternal invitation of Jesus been different? How often do we live with a tie-goes-to-the-runner mentality that says, I'm going to hold on to what I believe to be the good life today, I'm going to live into that, and I'll make these decisions that are of eternal consequence later. I've got till I'm 80, 85, 90, 95. I've got time. I don't need to make that decision. Jesus is calling us to have a sense of urgency and to lean into the fact that there's a date, there's a dash, and that dash is very short, and then for all of eternity, we live into the consequences of the decisions that we made today. Man, make the right decisions. Recognize that this life in scope of eternity is not long, it is very brief. We have decisions to make today that will have eternal consequences. This man chose the good life that he perceived over the eternal invitation of Jesus. Jesus looked around then after this man walked away and had a teaching opportunity with some of his disciples. So in verse 23, he says to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said once again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. A couple things on this really quickly. Why are the disciples amazed? You ever think about that? I mean, after Jesus' first statement, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, I would have thought the disciples would have said, so the poor get in, right? That's what you're saying? I mean, that's the natural conclusion of this. This is a poverty gospel, Jesus. Everyone in the bottom 90% gets to get in and, and, and the rich are going to have a difficult time. That's not what Jesus says and that's not how the disciples respond. Instead, they say, if the rich can't get in, who can get in? Okay, this, this is critical because in the disciples' mentality, and this is born out of 2,000 years of cultural understanding for them. You look at Noah, and then right after Noah, we see the story of Job. In the book of Job, Job has everything. Job loses everything. Job's friends come to him, and they say, what did you do? You've offended God. You were in God's favor. Something happened. Now you're out of God's favor. You did something to offend God. And that mentality has been pervasive in Jewish culture. So the disciples are saying, if the rich can't get in, we've always been taught that the rich, the wealthy, the well-off are in God's favor. If they can't get in, what hope is there for the rest of us? Then who can be saved? That's their question. And Jesus then comes back and says... It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus is destroying paradigms. He is shaking up perspectives. He is saying, listen, and some of you may have heard about the story of the low gate in the wall in Jerusalem and the camel would have to get on his knees and remove his burdens and go through the gate. I'm, I don't believe that and everything I have studied and the people that I have looked into as I've been working on it don't believe that either. Here's what Jesus was saying, both from the original language and because there's no archaeological evidence for such a gate. I believe Jesus was saying, I have a needle. That's the smallest circular opening I can think of. 
camel. Probably camels wandering around right in their vicinity. That is the largest mammal I can think of, land animal I can think of. There's not a chance. You cannot get a camel through the eye of a needle. It is impossible. And I believe that's what Jesus is saying because in the next couple verses, we see the disciples say, they were even more amazed. Who then can be saved? And then Jesus looks at them and says, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So this is not Jesus saying, poverty gospel, sell all your stuff and you get in. This is not Jesus saying anyone who is below a certain income automatically gets in. This is Jesus saying, if you trust in anything other than me, it is impossible. We're going to take a look real quick at Ephesians. This is the only passage we're going to jump to, and then we're going to come back and finish up in Mark. But I wanted to read this in Ephesians because I think this is a passage that so clearly lays out the impossibility of our own salvation and the beauty of the grace that we have in Jesus. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the possessions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's strong language like the rest of mankind, but God. I have that underlined and in bold. Those are maybe my two favorite words in all of Scripture. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. And he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for all who should walk in them. This is about Jesus doing the work. Nothing in and of ourselves can earn that salvation. The rich young ruler had two issues. He trusted in his own goodness, probably, unfortunately for him, perpetuated by a society that convinced him of his own goodness and favor with God. And he believed the abundance of his earthly possessions would give him a good life that he was unwilling to walk away from for the riches of all of eternity. And then the final piece I want us to look at today, and then we'll have a couple of applications really quickly. This could be a sermon in and of itself, but let's look at Peter and the disciples' conversation with Jesus in that last part. Verses 28 through 31. I'm going to read it out of here. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes and mothers and sisters and brothers and children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. I, um, 
Sometimes it's fun to see your own personality, and sometimes it's not fun to see your own personality in the characters of Scripture. Too often, for better or for worse, I see myself in Peter. I'm passionate, I'm excited, but I also yearn for approval and attention and affection, and I think that's exactly what we see in Jesus here, or in, in Peter here. He's saying, Jesus, we did it, right? We, we, you, just what you told, we left everything. We came, we followed you. We, we win, we're first, we were the best. And Jesus is saying, Peter, yes, I'm going to commend you, No one who has left everything will not inherit everything back again in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. But, but Peter, be careful because I am not after your possessions. I'm not after your position. I'm not after your heart, Peter. And if you begin to place your hope and your faith in that act that you left first, that you are the best, no longer are you chasing after my heart and I'm not connected with your heart. Now, it's an act that you have done. Go back to Ephesians, that's not what this is about. So Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Maintain a humble heart posture that focuses on relationship with Jesus first. So next steps, three quick things that I want you to think about as we leave here this morning. Jesus was constantly trying to shift perspective. Constantly taking his audience from the temporal focus to the eternal and Jesus' thoughts were always on the eternal. And if you have not yet accepted the free gift of salvation and all of the treasure that is waiting for you in eternal life, why? What is it here, temporally, that is holding your heart? What is it that you believe about yourself that you are placing your hope and your faith in? Because if, like the rich young ruler, you are trusting in your own goodness, if, like the rich young ruler, you are holding on and believe you have time, Jesus is calling us to relinquish that and recognize that all of eternity lays in the balance. We need to pursue him and him alone today. And then number two, if you have already given Jesus your heart, are you living every moment with an eternal perspective? Man, this is difficult. Throughout the day to day to day, it's so easy for us in the mundane to get pulled aside into the temporal and consumed by the cares and distractions of this world, the thorns that can come up or the rocks that can serve as persecutions. Put down deep roots in the good soil of Jesus Christ and abide in him and bear fruit for eternity and eternity alone. Let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I encourage you today, live every moment through an eternal lens. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you that you don't pull any punches. Father, thank you that you lean on us to expose the hard parts of our heart, to bring the things that are in the dark corners of our life into the light, not because you want to trample on us, but because you love us. Father, you know what is best for us. And what is best for us is you and you alone, and help us to recognize that in our own lives. Help us to live in light of eternity. Help us to have this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, humbled himself, set aside his deity, relinquished his possessions and position and power so that he could come into our lives, into our space, and and humbled himself unto the point of death, even a death on a cross. 
so that we could have a relationship with you. The veil was torn and we can come into your presence. And Father, what a gift that is. Father, I I pray that we would not pursue anything other than you and that we would understand, as Solomon said, that everything here is vanity, chaff in the wind. It is of no eternal significance except what is done for you that will have eternal impact. Father, as we enter into Veterans Day, thank you for the sacrifice of the men and women who have given their time and their talents and their treasure so that we may have the freedoms that we enjoy. Father, I pray that you would allow us to take that mentality and expand it into eternity. I pray that we would be in a wartime mentality that recognizes we have very limited time. We are on a short-term deployment. You have given us a task. Father, help us to lean into the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment, loving our brothers and sisters around us enough to help them recognize the void that is in their life and call them into Jesus because he is the only thing that can fill that void. Father, as we lean into that, I pray that through that we would be drawn into deeper relationship with you. Father, allow us to be a conduit for your love, that we would pour it into the lives of those around us and that through that we would bear eternal fruit. In Jesus' name.